0: since COVID especially there's just been this proliferation of like food delivery companies, Mm -hmm. you know, where you can just go online and you can order food and you can have it delivered to your door. But that isn't what we're doing here. We're not trying to just deliver fish that's caught in the same industrial system, deliver it to your door. We're not trying to do that. We're upending the whole system. We're thinking about how is it harvested we're thinking about eating with the ecosystem. So what does the ecosystem provide in abundance? Well, that's what we should be eating. We shouldn't be saying, I only eat sockeye salmon, right? So we're turning that on its head. We're harvesting what's abundant. And our members are committing to say, I'm only going to eat what's abundant in that year. And so this, these community contributions are what create this just system. And we've been demonstrating that for 13 years. And it's so very powerful. It's, you know, um, 7,700 member families actually now this year.
1: This is the podcast Creative at the Wheel, and I'm Julie Clare. As a transformational life coach and creativity guide, my life's work is helping people reshape their lives from the inside out. Here, I have deep dive conversations with luminaries, Share about their own transformational journeys and how they became soul sourced and creatively juiced. May their stories uplift and embolden all of us. Let's jump in. Today, my guest is Sonia Strobel. Sonia, in my eyes, is a leader in all the best ways. I really feel like the business she co founded in Canada is so well organized, so soul infused, and imaginative that I'm inspired and I think we can all be inspired of what's possible when we follow our inner lead is how I see it. Her story, we're going to hear about her story. What was originally a personal response to helping her father-in-law get a fair price for his catch, his fishing catch, right? Has become an, has become an international movement to revolutionize the seafood industry for social and environmental justice. Really exciting. Uh, Skipper Auto is the name of the business that she co founded with her husband. It supports now 30 independent fishing families and delivers sustainable local seafood to over 5,100 families across Canada, as well as a small, slick group of restaurants and retailers. Sonia has been the recipient of many awards acknowledging her vision and leadership, including winner of the CEO Radical Generosity Award in 2015. Winner of the 2019 Forum for Women Entrepreneurs Pitch for the Purse, Fellow of the Royal Canadian Geographical Society, Society, and Inc. Magazine's list of the top 100 female entrepreneurs of 2020. There's lots I could say, but uh, let's gonna Let's just jump in with Sonia. Welcome in, Sonia.
0: Oh, thank you so much for having me. But for this kind introduction, ah, absolutely, it's a fun one. I've
1: never, I've never interviewed someone in your industry and just well you're you're unique i want you to start in by by telling us sharing the story in your own words uh of how skipper auto was born and what it is at this point that's this business right that you're mm-hmm. in we're also going to be talking about just your personal life not just but your personal mm-hmm. life and um and and lots of interesting things but give us a sense of skipper auto first
0: well sure yeah so skipper auto is a uh, is you know, we really say it's not a fish delivery company, but Skipper Auto is a way to completely reinvent what is a poorly designed food system out there. And so currently when people buy seafood, their seafood's coming from all kinds of different places, unknown sources. Um, you know, the seafood industry is one that's full of social and environmental injustice. Um, people are completely disconnected from the oceans and the lakes and the streams where their fish is coming from and from harvesters who are who are collecting it. And, um, you know, it's just rife with problems. So skip rod is a really different way to get your seafood directly from fishing families through a subscription model. So our members um, buy a share in the catch before the fishing season gets started. Uh, And then all throughout the year, they can pick and choose. They can see real time, like who's catching what, where and when and how, and they can pick and choose the seafood that they want from the catch and have it delivered to their pickup location. I, I want to just jump in, you know, a lot of us know
1: about community supported agriculture, right? We, we buy a share in a CSA. Was this, is this, comp- is this really brand new in the fishing industry? And, and you started this back...
0: Yeah, In 2008, we got started. Yeah, Yeah, that's right. So in 2008, you know, I had actually been a member of community supported agriculture programs for years and years. And um, my first son was born that year in 2008. And we were picking up our our veggie CSA box. And for your listeners, I don't know if everyone knows what that is. But in a a CSA arrangement, you um, typically you buy um, a kind of a subscription for the season from your farmer. And then every week you get like a box of vegetables, maybe it's like May to October, depending what the growing season is in your in your region, and so we were picking up our veggie box there. And at the same time, you know, um, we uh, yes, as, as you mentioned, I, I sort of married into a fishing family, and uh, was watching my father in law Otto and how this sort of system worked, trying to help him out to have a viable business in fishing. And I had this kind of aha moment, like, wow, you know, instead of all of your beautiful catch just being exported as most fish. about 80% of the, the seafood that we harvest in Canada is exported. 80%? And, the numbers,
1: mm-hmm. and wow. the numbers in
0: the US are the same kind of thing. It's just all exported. And at the same time, a similar amount, 80 to 90% of the seafood we buy in Canada is imported from foreign sources. And it's the same in the US. And I saw that and I thought, wow, this is A crazy disconnect that that we're shipping fish all over the planet and and not being connected to harvesters and so I had this thought that there must be a better way and I was looking to see was anybody doing something like the CSA model in seafood and I couldn't find anyone and as it turns out later I found that there was a couple of other folks on the eastern seaboard of the United States who were having those same questions and same thoughts and just beautifully serendipitously, we, we all came up with the term community supported fishery around about the same time and years later we found one another and found the similarities in in the businesses that we'd started and the differences of course too um but yeah so that was really the the motivation was like let's just connect people who want to eat seafood directly to people who are harvesting seafood and in doing so this really is a community of support let's Let's come together to create the world that we want to see um, through our through our direct relationships with one another.
1: Who were you at this time to, it sounds, I hear the aha moment,
0: mm-hmm. right? The
1: aha-ness mm-hmm. of it. Who were you, is this when you were a teacher? Tell us who you were at that point that there was some, that you heard this aha, that you had some space around it. I'm just curious how. Yeah. Were mm-hmm. you, uh, did you consider yourself a leader? Were you somebody who started businesses on the side? I mean,
0: <laughs> yeah, you? it's, it's such a good question. I always say, like, I think if you, you know, asked people who knew me when I was a teenager, I would have been voted the least likely person to start a seafood company. Like that wouldn't have occurred to anyone. I didn't know anything about seafood. I didn't even like seafood um, because most of the seafood that I had access to was really terrible quality. So I wasn't, I wasn't uh, someone can, that you would have thought would do this. I was a high school teacher. When I look back, you know, hindsight is so interesting because when you look back, you can always see through lines. You can see threads in your life that make sense in hindsight, whereas you know you couldn't have looked forward and predicted that's where you would have ended up. But some of the through lines in my life have always been things like social justice, right? That this just isn't right. That it's done this way. Well, there has to be a better way. Then we should we should find a better way. And I've always been sort of an optimist in that way, and 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 not really someone who was. Um, comfortable with just saying, okay, well, that's always how it's been done. I guess that's how we have to do it. So there I, I was, I was a high school teacher, right? I was yeah. a, an inner city high school teacher and uh, uh, yeah, just in a very different place. For inner sure. city where Sonia? Uh, in Brooklyn, New York, actually. Wow. Yeah. And so I, uh, I became a teacher here in Vancouver, BC. And at the time they were um, recruiting teachers to come teach in 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 new york and uh, my husband and i thought that would be an adventure and we went there and we would would come home for our fishing summers and come home to help out with the fishery and and go back and teach uh for the school years in new york we did that for five years and um and so it was at the end of our time living in new york city in the final year that we had this idea for a an easier way to connect auto's um, catch to our friends and family which we were already doing through kinds of like phone trees and things. right? remember this is like, you know, this is is 2008. And so I would, Otto would call and say he was coming home and he had a certain number of fish on board the boat. And I would phone a few friends and say, Hey, who wants a fish? And I thought, okay, well, this isn't really efficient. There's gotta be a better way to do this. So it really wasn't like, Hey, I'm an entrepreneur and I'm going to start a business. It was just this, this isn't, the best way to do things. There's got to be a better way. And we were doing it off the sides of our desks. I had a, like I say, a newborn baby, um, was taking a a year off from teaching and, uh, and just, just did it just needed to be done and no one else was doing it. So I did it. Hey, how long
1: were you doing those phone trees? I love that beginning because so many of us and people that I work with, uh, you know, are wondering how you get started in something and and they don't know what it's going to eventually become. So how long were you doing the phone tree thing and and helping auto?
0: I think we started that probably in about 2001. So a good amount of time. Yeah. Yeah. Good amount of time. And like I say, not intended to be a business, just just what needed to be done. It's just the thing that made sense. And I always say that to people too, which is like, I I think the wrong way to think about business is that you have to picture what it's going to be in the end and somehow build that. And if I had thought about what Skipper Auto was to become in 13 years or 20 years, um, I could never have invented it or designed it or come up with what we currently have, all the complexity of it. So, so don't try to do that. Just come up with what needs to happen today, you know, it's just small things.
1: So how, you got so then you got started, it was you and your husband were both in on the business part when you started saying, hey, this, there could be something more efficient. Mm-hmm. How, how long did it take? What, what was that process to go from there to being, well, yeah, to, how fast did you grow?
0: So, I mean, that first year we had 40 members and they were all locally based in uh, Metro Vancouver and they all came to the Fisherman's Wharf to pick up fish directly from us. And I think I had an Excel spreadsheet with the list of their names. It was super low tech. Um, It hadn't even occurred to me that, you know, maybe we would need to have some kind of packaging for fish. And it was like, hey, bring a, cooler and take your fish home I mean we didn't have anything any of those systems figured out so about 40 members that first year and then the second year we had like 200 members and I remember Otto sort of saying Okay, well, that's that's okay. But like if I have a bad year for fishing, what if I don't catch enough fish for everybody? And so we said, Oh, right, okay, good point. Um, and he said, Well, you know, my my friends that he was fishing with, whether it was Ingy or Rod or um, one of the other guys that he was fishing with, like they have the same challenges I have with finding a fair and decent market for. For their catch and 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 so would would you want to get their fish too? And we said, Oh yeah, okay, well that would work. So we uh we expanded and we started to welcome aboard other fishing families. And and so it grew in that way. The important thing for us was always to say, um as long as everybody knows exactly who caught their fish and where and when and how and we're honoring and validating the stories of those those fishing families and, and having those direct connections then we then we could grow so we we grew and actually we um yeah it, it, it just I think it was a few more years before I realized that what it was was a business you know and I was trying to teach um and modify my teaching schedule so I took work as a continuing education teachers so that I could teach at night school, um, graduation credits, you know, English and things like that, and uh, and, and or teaching afternoons or, or teaching four days a week. So I had one day a week to work in the business. Um, but for many, many years, you know, we didn't pay ourselves uh, a salary or anything like that. We we ran the business. We we did the operations. Sean and I were everything. We, whether it was a bookkeeping, um, you know, distribution, uh, marketing, whatever you want to call it, we did all the things. And um, we'd get to the end of the year and, uh, um, and see if we made any money, <laughs> see if there was anything to pay ourselves with. Um, and, and really in hindsight, also looking back, I see what we were doing which is what, you know, people in business call the minimum viable product, right? We were we were determining if this idea actually had legs in a really low risk way. You know, see if it works, try it out, pivot, sort of try it. Oh yeah, that didn't work. We'll try this. We'll tweak, we'll change. But there was very low overhead or no overhead really. Um, And so it was easy for us to try stuff out and just see what worked.
1: Wow. When did it become officially a business or when did you When did a shift was like, okay, I can't do this one day a week or or yeah. Take us from there to Sonia's not teaching anymore. What was that shift?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it took place over a number of years, but there was a number of like really critical pivot moments. And when I look back on it, right. And so I think one of the first ones was realizing that we, we needed to hire somebody. Um, And that was, you know, because as I say, I was teaching. I felt like I couldn't pay myself, but um, there were, there were grants. There were sort of these like youth employment grants uh, from the government here that you could tap into. So if you could hire a young person, the government would contribute. I think it was maybe 50 or 60% of their salary for a, a fixed amount of time. And so we thought, okay, you know, if we can tap into that, I don't qualify for that grant, but but we can get somebody bright aboard who does and, and get that person to work for us. So we hired our first employee. She was wonderful. And um um, we actually we had sort of two people in those early days that we brought on under some of those grants, and those those two people helped us figure out that there was actually a business here. There was actually some systems and and business operations in place, and um, and that second person that we hired. Um, She, she really uh, had her finger on the pulse of small business in a way that I, I didn't at all. And she found this program that was like a social venture accelerator program through our local university through through UBC here. And she said, you know, I really think you should apply to this because I think what you've got here is a business and I think you just need some, some business help so. So she helped us apply. I mean, I'll never forget. She came over. It was Halloween because the application was due on November 1st and she came over Halloween night, you know, and I had like two little kids trick or treating and we were there. She was dressed as a mouse. I think I was a witch. And we sat there at my coffee table and hammered out this application uh, for this program. And, uh, and we got accepted. We got into this program and um, that was a really pivotal moment. That program had a, uh, an office space for us, you know, and we had business coaching. So we had like weekly programs and, and like uh, breakfasts with the other uh, companies who were in, in the cohort. It was for a full year. And, uh, and I learned all this stuff that I would have learned if I had an MBA, but I don't have an MBA or I'd gone to business school at all, right? So I basically got a, a business degree on the fly while teaching, while raising kids, while doing all these things. And that really helped me see that what we had here had legs. This was a business. This is something that if I dedicated my energy to, um, we could really do something big in the world.
1: It's such a great, I'm so glad that you told us about that because that's, I've been through some of these steps in different ways and it makes it real for a lot of us. Uh, We all have these small business uh, uh, resources available to us that um, sometimes we get connected to. And I, I, I just also, I'm thinking as you're talking that you're in the fishing industry, So this is how the business kind of was born and started, but what is it like to be in the fishing industry and what is going on there? What, you know, and what is, you know, in terms of social justice being, you know, why does it have to be that way, that, that thread in your life? What, what do you see now? What, what, what is it to be in the fishing industry? You know, the,
0: the fishing industry is a global commodities market you know it's like lumber or uh, uh you know other other resources these are massive and complex global supply chains and industries and they're really you know at at the at the core these are industries that are designed for profit right they're designed for shareholder profit and uh, they're, they're incredibly complex with, uh, you know, foreign currencies and um, different countries' regulations and, you know, super complex industries. And as I say, they're designed for shareholder profit. And they're really good at that. So I used to say things like uh, they were um, they were broken and we have to fix them. But I don't say that anymore because they're not broken. They work very well to do what they're designed to do which is shareholder profit at any, any cost. And the truth is that they're just not designed with uh, my values in mind. And certainly the values of, of many, many people in the world, they're not designed with our values in mind. So what do we value? I mean, we value, uh, you know, community, uh, justice, um, uh, sustainable way of life, traditional ways of life in people's communities and coastal communities. And those are not things that are created by the current system we have. So that system is designed to keep producer and consumer apart from one another, right? Because if the consumer and the producer don't know each other, then um, there's all kinds of extra levers you can pull to generate additional profit, right? So for example, you can, you um, Find a place where there's an an abundance of a certain type of seafood that you can get really cheaply, right? And so you can get that really cheap, whether that's because you're exploiting um, the ecosystem, whether it's because you're exploiting uh, labor practices in a certain country, you're exploiting people's desperation um, because of other socioeconomic factors that cause them to to be really uh, in hard times. you exploit something, you get a product really cheaply, and you freeze it, and you store it for a really long time, and you bring it out when you can get a high price for it, right? And the consumer doesn't know any of this. The consumer doesn't know where it was harvested, how it was harvested. They don't know that it maybe has been in a freezer for four years. Uh, They don't know that maybe it's been mislabeled. You know, in Canada, about 40, 41% or 49% nationally of our seafood is mislabeled. Um, It's almost half of seafood is, is not what it says it is on the label. And it's
1: amazing to hear that. I mean, okay, keep going, keep going. <laughs>
0: yes, that's okay. It is shocking. Yeah, right? this is the result. Whether it's in, in, intentional or unintentional, this is the result of this incredibly long, convoluted supply chain, global supply chain, which whose intention is a shareholder profit, right? And 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 COVID has done an amazing job of pointing out to people how vulnerable we are to the whims of global trade um supply chains i think about the ship that was blocking the, yeah. the canal and 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 how we're we're still dealing with a uh, shipping backlog and you know you can't get all kinds of products just because there's this enormous backlog
1: and here you are in this fishing industry and you see that it's and now you're at this point saying, I see that it's not broken. This is designed well for this, but I've, you know, the system that currently exists, the profit for shareholders. But but you're saying, wait, but we have different values. So what's it like to lead with your values in a fishing industry? Does it how much does it change what you do or how you tell people what you're doing? Or how, how is it part how has it become part of the business, your values? Mm. How does it drive the business?
0: Yeah, it drives every decision that we make, the 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 values. And so that shows up every day in big and small ways about how we make decisions, what to do. And so one of our core values, we call it creative pioneering, which is just not accepting that because something's always been done a certain way that that's the best way to do it. So we're constantly questioning and re-evaluating why we do things in certain ways and constantly reinventing to do things in, in ways that are that are really different. Um, and so that, that shows up in everything from right from the fishing grounds, all the way to, to distribution, to how it shows up in, in in members homes and how they get the, the seafood that they're eating. But every piece of that is designed around a theory of change that we have. And that theory of change is that a just and equitable seafood system is possible. And we can design that. And the way that that is produced is through communities of people who come together around that shared vision and who contribute something to that vision. And so from everyone, from how, how members participate, everything is, it's very delicate because every decision that we've made is around that is around how does the members involvement produce that just and equitable system? How do shoreside businesses or governments or um, our, 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 our staff, how do each of us, what do we contribute to that? And how does that produce that just and equitable seafood system? So I know since COVID, especially, there's just been this proliferation of like food delivery companies, Mm -hmm. you know, where you can just go online and you can order food and you can have it delivered to your door. But that isn't what we're doing here. We're not trying to just deliver fish that's caught in the same industrial system, deliver it to your door. We're not trying to do that. We're upending the whole system. We're thinking about how is it harvested. We're thinking about eating with the ecosystem. So, what does the ecosystem provide in abundance? Well, that's what we should be eating. We shouldn't be saying, I only eat sockeye salmon, right? So we're turning that on its head. We're harvesting what's abundant. And our members are committing to say, I'm only going to eat what's abundant in that year. Um, The prepay model is so important because fishing families are so tied to the risk. It's such a risky business. And they'll go out and they'll take all these loans and then they'll fish. And then they'll just hope to heck that they get paid a decent price for that catch. And if they don't, they just lose money year after year. So we take that out of there. We say, okay, well, let's have these members who agree. I'm gonna eat whatever you catch that's abundant and sustainable this year. Here's my money up front. You don't have to go to the bank and and borrow a ton of money and hope you can pay off your loans at the end of the year. I'm committing to you. And so these community contributions are what create this just and equitable seafood system. And we've been demonstrating that for 13 years and it's so very powerful. It's, you know, um, 7,700 member families actually now this year across Canada. Mm
1: 7,700. Wow. And how much much publicity and or how much talk needs to happen for you to get fishermen that are totally in alignment that are willing to go with these? You know, I guess I'm wondering how many fishermen is this really inside what they wanted to do and they didn't weren't able to do? And how much is it now? Well, I would like to be part of this business. So I'm going to do it. I'm just curious about just even just on the fisherman level to start.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. On the side of, of the fishing families, you know, the um, small scale inshore um, fishing families who are fishing in these sort of small scale ways. Um, th- these are people who, want to protect a way of life for many generations they're not in this for a quick buck right now right um, they've often come from multi-generational families and they are raising their children in these in these fishing communities in these small-scale fishing ways of life and um the their, their alternatives are to you know, fish and this fish disappears into a global supply chain and they have no connection to where it goes. They have no say over price, they have no agency and it can be really discouraging. And so our fishing families, um, they, they love being part of this. They love that they feel honored. So we put their face and their bio on every piece of fish. So as a member, when you get a piece of fish, it's got the, the person's face um, and, and their, their story, the name of their boat, where they fish and how long they've been fishing. It's right on the piece of fish. So they really feel honored by this, knowing that this member at home, you know, takes out a piece of fish from their freezer. And, and, and lots of our members say, you know, when we sit down to eat, we take the label to the table and we say, hey, everybody, let's thank Doug for catching our dinner tonight. And that's, that's so powerful beyond being paid more. So, you know, be, beyond being paid better for their, their catch beyond having a guaranteed fair market for the catch beyond those things there's just that uh, that honoring that valuing of your work that they don't normally get so fishing families love to be part of it and we certainly don't have a shortage of fishing families who'd like to fish for skipper auto and every year as our membership grows uh, we're able to onboard and welcome more fishing families in 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 new communities um you know this year we welcomed uh, two fishermen from nunavut who are um, inuit harvesters who 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 lake fish for arctic char so we were able to expand to the arctic and uh you know into into more remote um, indigenous communities on the coast and to tell their stories and and, and share their worldviews which are so important for all of us to be learning.
1: Wow, that's such a beautiful story. That's what I would hope, right, in my imagination that the people want to be honored and for their fish to be something that's really prized and and celebrated and known, right? And locally. And and, And it makes
0: them so proud. So many of them say, hey, you know what, I handle my fish with such care. Um, You know, I have traditions around how we honor and respect the fish that we catch. And if it all gets just chucked in a big bin and exported, and nobody really values that or knows that I did that, it's so sad. But when my face is on it, I get to take extra pride knowing that someone's going to to notice the difference, notice how I handled this fish with care. Um, And there's such pride in that. Absolutely. So let's go to the
1: community. Now the community supported, this doesn't exist without a community that's buying this up that went from, would you say, uh, 40 people, to 40 yeah. members to 200 members in a year, right that's at the right. beginning, right now you're that's at 7,700. Right. What, what is it? What does it take to get the community involved in the way that they're involved now? What, what do you see as somebody who's um, leading the ship? Yeah. <laughs> what, 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 what do you notice? How does this happening?
0: Well, I think a lot of it's education and having been a high school teacher and and also incidentally, um, Otto, Skipper Otto was a high school teacher and my husband, Sean, was also a high school teacher. So we're really passionate about education. And we all really always have felt that people make great decisions when they have information, when they know and they understand. And that's, you know, kind of in contrast to the industrial system, which is really designed to keep people in the dark so that they don't make choices and make decisions, that they do what's easiest or cheapest. Um, You know, in contrast, we've always felt that if we can show people, if we can give the stage to fishing families, let them tell their stories and let them connect with people, then people make Great decisions, people do make values aligned decisions um, when they know one another. So a lot of it's been education, it's been storytelling. And and as I say, giving the platform to fishing families to share their stories, that's really um, been important. And then word of mouth. Of course, people uh, have friends over for dinner and, and, and they say, wow, this is you know the best fish I've, I've ever had. And they say, oh, yeah, you know, and they want to tell the story and people get really passionate about the stories. So it's, it's, it's really uh, all comes education and connection all comes out of that. And people can really rally around and form a community when they when they perceive and they fully understand that their membership makes a difference in the lives of real people. So what
1: what has this done to you being part of this model? And I know we talked a little bit about how you want to help other businesses grow into this community supported model, but what has this done to you being being involved in this education process, this honoring of fishermen that's obviously in your family, um, the tradition? What where where is this taking you, this experience of all of this?
0: Well, I mean, first of all, I'll say that um it gives me hope. Every day I wake up and I have hope for the future and that's a big thing because we live in a time where there's a lot of things to be afraid of with climate change and, and, and forest fires we see here in British Columbia every summer now and with you know the pandemic and with uh, oh gosh crisis after crisis um this gives me hope because it reminds me that actually at their very nature, humans are good and that when they are connected to one another and they have meaningful relationships with one another, that's fulfilling. Meaningful relationships are a reason to get up in the morning um, and, and they give meaning to our lives. And so a skipperado, you know, with these 7,700 member families across the country and now, you know, around 40 fishing families this year who were supported, um, I, when, I, when I come to work every day and I see our whole team working together to connect these people and how, and how quickly it's growing, it gives me hope. It makes me think, yeah, you know what? There is hope for the world. We can change things. We can do better. Um, and it makes me realize that what we've done here at Skipper Auto is that we've illustrated that business can be done differently. Businesses can be what we call community-supported. And so what is a community supported business? I've come to realize that this is actually just a very different way of thinking about business rather than thinking about business as, okay, we're going to make money. Now, how are we going to make money here? What are we going to buy? And how are we going to sell it? How are we going to have decent margins? Uh, Instead of thinking of business that way, what do we think of business as a tool for creating the kind of world that we want to live in? And the kind of world that I want to live in is one where people are respected people are treated with dignity and humanity where the environment and ecosystems and uh, and other creatures on the planet are treated with dignity and respect i want to live in a world where people are connected and care and know one another and treat one another with respect this is the kind of world i want to create and the business business can do this and so if you start by thinking of business that way even if what you're thinking about is just you know i want to start a community garden at the end of my block well, if you think of it from the perspective of what did what are who are the communities involved? Who are the people here? And what do each of those communities of people need to contribute? to this thing in order to create that kind of world that we want to have i think that's very powerful and i, I really actually think that that way of thinking can be used in any business not just a food based business but really any business and it, and and as that vision and that model proliferates i really think that we can transform a lot of what's badly designed in our world
1: oh wouldn't that be wonderful um absolutely and I, I i've got a Lots of questions, but first off, when you say community, how important do you think it is with this model that it is from the conception community supported versus uh, something really more individual that you see down the line might help the community. But from the very inception, it's fishermen and uh, people eating fish. I mean, Mm -hmm. how important do you think is that community aspect from the very beginning? Community garden, the example you used is a community garden from the beginning, right?
0: That's right. That's right. I think it's really important. And I I, I think um, it's not to say that one can't pivot a business that's, that's, that's farther down the line into being a community supported business. But certainly from our perspective, we, as I said, I I was a high school teacher and I envisioned my life and I knew how long I was going to work before I retired. You know, I envisioned what I was going to do. I had an income. I didn't do this because it was like, oh, I got to find a way to make money. Um, I did this because it needed, it desperately needed to be done. Because this thing was so poorly designed, and it needed to be redesigned. Um, and I and I think if you if you're an entrepreneur at heart, you know, in in your in your in your nature, you like starting things. Then I encourage people to really start by thinking about what around you do you see as being poorly designed that needs to be redesigned to be aligned with your values. And out of that may come a business one day, or maybe out of it will come a project. It doesn't really matter. But if you can start at the very beginning to say, here's something that's wrong. It's unjust, it's unethical. It's it's not the way I want my world to be. you start with that and you start by reinventing for community, then I think a community uh, supported business is a natural evolution of that thinking.
1: I, totally. Absolutely. And here you are now, how much, where is your vision? Is the vision of, wow, how imagining how big, I mean, how big Skipper Auto can grow? I mean, could it be, you know, what are the limits here? How much is it is focusing on wanting to bring these aspects of community uh, supported um, businesses to other domains or other people?
0: Yeah, that's very much the thing I'm very excited about now. Yeah. So you know, Skipper Auto as an entity, it's in itself has certain limitations and capacity in terms of you know infrastructure and just uh, you know freezer storage spaces and things like that. And that's okay. It doesn't need to grow forever. Uh, that's that's not what's important here. And I think sometimes people there's this kind of I think misguided notion that all businesses need to have infinite growth. Uh, I mean, infinite growth is so broken. We, we live in a finite planet. You can't grow things infinitely, but what you can do is you can keep changing and evolving other systems around you. And so I see the opportunity for the community-supported business model or the Skipper Auto style of community-supported business, I see an opportunity for that to grow and proliferate around the world. Um, We've been lucky enough to um, uh, be developing software, and software is one of the tools that makes it really difficult for people to do this. If you don't have the software to manage this, it's really hard to grow uh, something like a Skipper Auto. And so we have been developing the software tool that allows other Um, fishing communities, other food communities, and frankly, other communities of production of any kind to connect directly to their consumers. So I'm really excited about the vision um, as we onboard more companies to this software now, um, seeing how they take the tool and how they can grow community supported businesses around the world. So I'm really excited about um, about that opportunity. In fact, I was talking with um, a community in, in the North who are developing a a, a new food system uh, amongst uh, the Inuit community to share traditional uh, meat that is hunted. And what they were saying to me was really what they need is this kind of a tool to help facilitate that easy sharing of of their traditional food and how the Skipper model and the Skipper software can really facilitate that. Isn't that exciting to think that this could be used for social change all around the world? It doesn't have to be mine. It doesn't need to be that I own that business. It needs to be that this, what we've learned and what we've developed can be picked up by others who are doing great things in the world.
1: Absolutely. Now, can you see yourself, are you the leader on this in terms of outreach to other kinds of businesses and outreach about, you know, speaking on this and mm-hmm. talk? Are you the leader on that? Is your husband as involved as you? What's happening with that? Because yeah. I, you, you speak about it so beautifully. I, I imagine that this is partly what you're doing now
0: it is what i do now you yeah. know and yeah exactly and as as ceo that's my role is that um outward facing right so it's it's how are we building more connections, more networks outside of this company, whether that's bringing aboard new fishing families, bringing aboard new shoreside businesses, community partners, um, and then then the vision for these next steps. So um, taking the software, the vision for taking that to other communities and other business models. So that's really what my role is. And I, I think that's really important when in my earlier years, I didn't understand what a CEO did, to be honest, I wasn't didn't come from a corporate world and didn't really understand what a CEO did and how that was different from, for example, what a COO does and a COO I have a wonderful COO um, who is our our chief operating officer who runs the operations really who is 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 involved in all of the operations from getting the fish from the ocean. you know, through processing, packaging, cold storage, uh, pick and back distribution, getting it out to members. I have an incredible marketing team, a communications team. I have all these people who are doing these operations. And my job in many cases is to support those people and then get out of the way and let them do what they're really great at. And I didn't used to understand that. I used to think that to be a CEO, I had to do all the things, you know, and, and absolutely wear myself to the bone, doing every single thing. And I realize now that as a leader, a big part of my role as a leader is um, winning people over, getting them excited around a shared vision, making important and valuable connections and drawing those resources to the company and supporting the staff within the company who are doing all the great work. And, and I love doing that. I think that's so important that that leaders I realize do. that's their role, right?
1: Yeah, you make this all so approachable. And I think a lot of CEOs don't know what CEOs do. I mean, I'm not trying to be arrogant because I don't know what CEOs do. (laughs) You know what I mean?
0: And I know there's. I really think they they don't. And I think a lot of CEOs are actually doing operations when they shouldn't be getting in the way of operations. They should have awesome people doing operations and they should be getting excited and getting those other people excited and supporting them. And
1: as a CEO right now with this business, how much do you see this work? always in terms of representing Skipper Auto, or do you have your own personal kind of own career developing in terms of, uh, kind of educating for leadership and, and specifically, um, community supported businesses, or is it all still as part of your work with Skipper Auto?
0: Yeah, I, I, it's really interesting lately because, um, I can see now, uh, I kind of have a line of sight to some other aspects of my career and my work, which are not necessarily fully embedded in Skipper Auto, right? Where my pla- my my uh, role as CEO of Skipper Auto is a jumping off point or as a platform for a lot of that work. But there really is an opportunity for me to um, run with kind of my own uh, vision for this change that is outside Skipper Auto. So if I'm, you know, consulting to help um, uh, some meat producers develop uh, their own type of uh, community supported business then that really is some additional work my own work that is outside the company and that that's quite exciting it's exciting to think that there is this other impact that i can have in addition to my role as the ceo of this company uh, to creating this bigger social change beyond the company
1: and what's your sense sonia about the possibilities of uh changing a lot of the big structures there's there's I haven't actually seen the films, uh, but there's lots of films about the corruption in the fishing industries. We we know it in, in so many kinds of industries. What 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 heartens you? I know you have hope when you come to work at Skipper Auto. But what do you? How do you think the the face of business could shift if we really got this community supported businesses kind of model? Yeah.
0: I think it's massive. I think the potential is massive. I think that it's so easy to get discouraged, right? It's so easy to watch some of these documentaries that portray all the horrible things that are happening, and the scale of them is so massive. And it's so easy to say, "Forget it. Why am I even recycling my plastic? It's all going in the oceans, right?" Like it's so easy (laughs) to get discouraged. (laughs) But I, but I really do think that the only meaningful change that happens in the world, and historically, is grassroots. Uh, initiation, you know, initiatives that start where communities just say, that's it, I'm not doing that anymore. I don't want to be part of that anymore. And, and it has to start with education because if people don't know how bad it is, then they're not going to be motivated to make change. And if they realize how bad things are and, and they start an initiative to give people an alternative like we did at Skiprado who just gave people an alternative. You know, if you don't want to be part of that, if you don't want to support that all those things that are wrong with the global seafood system, you don't want to support that? Well, here's another way. You can still eat seafood, which I happen to think is one of the most sustainable and is, in fact, one of the lowest carbon uh, uh, proteins on the planet. You want to be part of that? Here's an alternative. Here's a way that you can you can be part of it and ha- and have that still jive with your values. I think increasingly, as people do that, if people are inspired to start community-supported businesses, yeah, there's a, an amazing business uh, here here in BC that is recycling wool fibers and making all, completely 100% recycled garments. And they'll even take back your garments and recycle them. I mean, what an amazing thing! How we could think about the garment industry and how how messed up that is, right? There's all kinds of problems in the garment industry. Okay, so there's somebody who's reinventing in that industry, and I think we can begin to. Shift the narrative. We don't have to tolerate systems that don't align with our values. We we can take control. We can reinvent. Absolutely.
1: What what do you personally? What are your challenges, or what's the pushback for you being a leader here, the CEO right now of the company, uh, founder, co-founder? Like, what's the pushback, or what do your hard days look like? Because this is all pretty magical, but um, I can imagine this is not (laughs) seamless. (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah, I think that the, um, you know, I think one of the really important things is uh, to have good um, awareness, to have really good um, uh, mindfulness, right, and to to notice what's going on in your mind and your and in your stories, because I think it's really easy. We 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 as humans, we can get wrapped up into stories, which is you know, everyone's against me and these people hate me and these people are telling these stories about me. And we can get wrapped up into those stories if we allow allow our mind to run away with stories. And so I think something that's really important for leaders and for everyone and for leaders and for CEOs is, is their mindfulness practices. And if that looks like meditation or whatever that looks like for you, but to developing um, self-awareness, I, I think it'd be really easy. Like certainly there is, uh, there are, all kinds of trolls on the internet, you know, if I wanted to spend time on the internet listening to people who might say that um, Skipper Otto is naive or deluded or overly optimistic, or, uh, you know, there's people who just don't think we should be eating seafood and they, uh, or or animal products of any kind. And if I listened to um, negative stories, and I took those personally, um, life would be really hard. It would be really hard, but I don't. I mean, I've worked but really hard on that. To what not are some? What are some personally. of your
1: practices? I hear it. I can't imagine yeah. that wouldn't be the case. When yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. The practices are 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 for you. Yeah. It, for me. Yeah. So, I mean, I meditate daily, and I have uh, spent a lot of time learning what that really means. So, really examining what meditation is, and and meditation really is like it's like going to the gym for your mind. So whether that's 10 minutes here or it's half an hour there, or it's five minutes before I go into a meeting, it's exercise, right? And so I do the exercise of stopping what I'm doing, noticing what's happening in my body, taking some deep breaths and long, slow exhales. um, And I and I'm, think of, I think of it as weightlifting. You know, if I wanted my biceps to get stronger, I'd go to the gym and I'd do some bicep curls. And then later on, when I need to pick up a heavy box at work, then my muscles would be stronger, right? And I don't expect them to just be strong because I want to pick up a box. And it's the same thing with our mind. We have to do these practices. We have to do the meditation effort and so that we can strengthen our awareness. Right? I also know
1: that you rode your bike to work today. So Dude, is that part right. of it too, is being outside? Not just yeah. Being-
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I ride my bike to work every day and uh, it's about a half an hour each way. And that's, it's, it's just, I get exercise without having to, it feels effortless, right? It just happens on my way to and from work and uh, I get all this fresh air and I, I have a little distance uh, time between work and my home life so that I can breathe. And it's like, I can sort out, I can leave behind work at work. And by the time I get home, I'm ready to be mom, wife, all the other things that I am in my life. And, um, and so, yeah, exercise, um, time outdoors, those things are really helpful. Um, you know, putting good food in our bodies is helpful. Really good sleep hygiene is helpful. So I think all of those things help me to be um, grounded in what can't, there's a lot of negativity out there. And, is and there
1: where do you, where do you experience the negativity the most?
0: Oh boy, there's all kinds of places. I mean, I think social media is really toxic. So I don't spend yep. much time right. on social media. So um that there's can be a lot of negativity, especially during COVID. I think it's almost um people are not feeling heard. So so social media gives them a place to to jump up and down and 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 say things to, to try to feel heard. And that can hurt, that can be hurtful to people. So I don't think it's a really healthy place to spend a lot of time. So I try to stay away from social media. Um the industry itself, um, you know, and I don't blame individual players around me in the industry for, uh, you know, for 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 being bad people or anything like that. Um, they're they're up against uh, a, a massive global uh, industry that that has a lot of momentum to move in a certain way, and so you've got players who are playing within this space. They're trying to make a living. They're trying to find certainty when in an uncertain um, system. And, um, and they often, um, uh, can be really cynical about what we're doing. And, and I, I understand that. I understand that. And I don't expect everybody to, uh, be as much of an optimist as I am about things. And so, so people can, sometimes when people are feeling negative, they can really try to take you down with them. And I think it's really important in those situations that I try to recognize that, um, this is people who feel hurt or they don't feel heard or they feel, um, you know, vulnerable or, uh, they're fearful. They're coming from a place of fear and they're, they're lashing out, uh, at us to, to try to make themselves feel better. And I try to have empathy for that situation. And again, acknowledge that's not about me. That's about the situation. That so
1: again, in. I hear a pretty, pretty high, uh, spiritual principle about not taking things personally mm-hmm. and it's a level of leadership that you are. It sounds like that's, that's one of the biggest ones is what I'm hearing. Also the need for practices, uh, Almost everybody that I interview, we have some and me included, have some kind of practices in order that we can have the clarity or the space we need to be able to do what we do. So I yeah. I'm with you hundred percent. I, I have to tell you, what's um what's one thing that happened this week? If you just look we are we're pretty much done here, but I could I could ask you a lot. But if we just said like what's one of the things just on a day-to-day level that you that, it, that that happens for you at work that gives you a lift or that reminds you why you're doing what you're doing?
0: Oh, that's a great question. I mean, just before I walked into this meeting, um, you know, Celine, who is my marketing and communications uh, manager, she was just, she just opened up the software to see. uh, So we opened um, membership for the 2022 season yesterday. So, So people have just started signing up for next year. And she just quickly opened it up and she looked at it and she said, she told me how many people had signed up overnight. And it was like 500 people signed up overnight. And, you know, we both just smiled at each other. And we're like, oh, yeah, like it works. Like people believe in this. People are excited about it. So like those little moments of connection with people that I work with on my team and those little reminders, like remember what we're doing here, like remember what we're creating, That's, that, that keeps me going. And it's, it's just wonderful to put into context with a big picture all the time
1: so grounded and it's so simple and yet all that's happened in these years since you started thank you sonia thank you so much for having me it's such a pleasure to chat with you well that's today's podcast of creative at the wheel before we go i want to invite you to check out my ongoing friday gathering online gathering the creative cure where for 75 minutes each friday we follow our intuition and play with pen paper paint whatever creative materials you have on hand as a way of coming back into alignment with life and the moment fully expressed. It's very healing and a whole lot of fun. You can also learn more about my one-on-one coaching on my website, paintbiglivebig.com.